Hello and welcome to Russians with Attitude. Yes, this time we have invited a journalist. Hush, people, don't throw any tomatoes yet, because she's uh, one of the good ones. Well, in any case, we're going to find out in this interview. Hey, Eva. Hey, привет. Uh, so you are currently in Donetsk That's right. and it's been shelled every single day. So what is the situation like there? Yeah, so I got here last Friday afternoon. I think when I arrived, it was an hour or so after Ukraine had shelled uh, an area of the city, like a central area of the city. So I went to see, you know, what I could see. But that was nothing compared to yesterday. Yesterday, um, well, I was out of uh, I was out of Donetsk. I was um, visiting a, a monastery, kind of near. Um, I'd, I'd have to look at a map to get the name, and I can do that in a second. But uh, ne- not far from Ukrainian forces, so it was uh, it was somewhat risky to get there because there was a stretch of road that was uh, potentially exposed to Ukrainian fire. Thankfully, we didn't come under fire, uh, but we went there because um, the people that are still living there are not only being shelled increasingly so on a daily basis, but you know they, they're in desperate need for food and basic humanitarian aid. So I was with a fantastic RT journalist, Roman Kosarov, and he's been doing incredible work uh, collecting money to buy and distribute humanitarian aid. He's done that for the past couple of months now, I think. So um, while we were there, uh, just like a few days prior, there had there was um, shelling once we got there and a, apparently a Ukrainian drone had spotted us. Um, but then when we got to, back to um, Donetsk, it was around, I think around 2 p.m., maybe 3 p.m., I'd have to check. But um, anyway, uh, the bombing had already started. Uh, Ukrainian bombing of the city had already started. I believe it started in the morning, actually, but it it started heavily again, and then um, resumed in the evening from around six six thirty p.m. and and that was the heaviest. That was incredibly heavy. I I mean uh, I've 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 heard my share of bombs uh, from my days in Gaza, but this was quite heavy. And a lot of the people I spoke with, like the journalists and and locals here, were saying. This is one of the heaviest days uh, of Ukrainian bombing that it's been for quite a while. Um, and t- specifically, it should be said that, you know, the Ukrainian forces were not targeting uh, military. They were not ta- targeting Donbass or Russian military targets. They were targeting uh, residential areas and uh, civilian infrastructure, workshops, uh, a maternity hospital, which should have the media howling. But uh, from the search I've done just before we spoke, I could not find Western media talking about the the maternity hospital that Ukraine bombed, although we know that they're very fond of talking about hospitals bombed when it's when they can allege that it's Russia doing it. Um, and uh, this morning, I visited the uh, I visited the hospital, so I saw the damage. There was I I was told uh, by another journalist it was a, a Eurogun uh, rocket that hit the top of the hospital. Um, I, mm-hmm. I saw the point of impact, the hole in the in the roof of the hospital. Thankfully, no one was killed because uh, people had evacuated to the basement and were sheltering there. But uh, other journalists who visited there last night, uh, Dmitry Ashk. Astrakhan, for example, um, showed there were dozens of women, some of them heavily pregnant, who would have been at risk uh, from the Ukrainian shelling. This morning, uh, after that, uh, after visiting the hospital, I also went to the Kievsky district uh, in the north of Donetsk, which has been heavily hit. And there were a couple of apartment buildings that were just shredded with uh, shrapnel from the, the bombings, a few bombed out cars. Uh, so it's it's been pretty intense, but uh, just again, perusing uh, media, doing a search first for 
Donetsk Maternity Hospital and then just Maternity Hospital and then just Donetsk. I find virtually nothing in the Western corporate media. And the other thing I, I forgot to mention was uh, in, in the bombings in the afternoon, uh, Ukraine, oh, it's starting up now again, I can hear it in the background. Uh, Ukraine targeted um, a, a Donetsk market. And uh, as of today, five people have been killed from that targeting of a civilian area, um, you know, with bombing. So that's what's been, oh, and I'm sorry, one other thing, also in the afternoon, one of the other uh, targets, it was like in in an industrial area, um, there was a water bottling factory and some sort of stationary factory that when we arrived there about an hour after uh, those areas having been bombed, um, one, the flames had mostly been put out and the other was still raging uh, with, with fire. Again, completely residential area. So that's that's what's been going on uh, recently. And just one other thing, uh, when I was searching to see if any Western corporate media had mentioned it, which I, of course, did not expect they would, I saw both Ukrainian and Western sources not only uh, obfuscating on Ukraine's terrorism, but also alleging that Russia had been bombing Donetsk. Yeah, I mean, that is kind of their usual playbook, which they mm-hmm. started back in 2014. Uh, I think the first major time was the air raid in Lugansk on June 2nd when they bombed the park in central Lugansk and then they said that it was a stray separatist missile and basically the the separatists are shooting themselves uh, meme uh, they've done it all the all these eight years I yeah mean, I, I, was... I mean I mean it's, it's, it's kind of astonishing they don't even try to yes. justify it somehow. They don't even try to claim that they are hitting military targets. They just deny it flat out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, to draw a parallel with Syria, uh, I can think of numerous examples, but I'll give a personal one. Also in 2014, uh, terrorists then occupying eastern Ghouta, they were constantly shelling old Damascus. You know, I was staying in, in the east gate of old Damascus and it, it, they were being murdered every single day by those terrorists. Uh, but but in one, on one occasion, they shelled an elementary school in old Damascus and they killed one child and injured over 60. And a Canadian journalist with the BBC was there uh, at the French hospital where the children were being treated. And she was questioned by uh, Mother Agnes Mariam, a Syrian Lebanese nun, uh, or, sorry, maybe Lebanese Palestinian nun, whether whether BBC was going to tell the truth. And Lee's to say nodded her head, like pretending that she would. And then I found her article later and she actually had the audacity to say, you know, like, yeah, well, it's believed that the quote unquote regime bombs uh, Damascus. It was disgusting. Well, some of our listeners might ask, uh, what about Mariupol? Uh, Isn't that a revenge for Mariupol? And yeah, it's true that in time of war, morality becomes a very thin line. Everyone is forgetting about the eight years, that it's not a revenge for Putin invading Ukraine. I think the main difference to me is is that, uh, well, right now, in Donetsk, there is not a large contingent of uh, Russian military or LDNR militia. So it's uh, habitual because it was going on for eight years and it's uh, on purpose uh, to hit as many civilian targets as possible. What do you think about that? 
it, it definitely is uh, intentional. Um, so Mariupol, I mean, I, I've been to Mariupol a few times, but I, I have to say, like, I, I wasn't at the forefront. I didn't see fighting. Uh, but I am aware, uh, having talked to uh, civilians and fellow journalists, and then also following a number of uh, uh, honest telegram channels, that, yes, there is destruction. I did see destruction. I'm not going to say there was no destruction. But, you know, there was destruction in Homs. There was destruction in Aleppo. And what Western journalists do when they zoom in on the destruction is they neglect or they intentionally omit the reasons why there's destruction. So, you know, in the case, both in, in both cases, again, there's so many parallels between how things occurred in Syria and how media reported on it and how things are occurring in the Donbass and how media's reporting on it. And so in, in both cases, uh, when there's destruction of civilian areas, it's either uh, often from Ukrainian forces themselves or if it is from Donbass or Russian forces, it is a return of fire upon um, Ukrainian and, and Nazi elements that have embedded in residential areas, in schools, in hospitals, and are firing from there. And um, that's that's precisely what Western media omits. And I can even give an, a, a concise example of uh, two French media. Okay, I don't remember the names of the, the channels, but they're mainstream French channels. And uh, in March, I, I joined a, a media delegation or, organized by Russia's Ministry of Defense. So there were there were journals that were actually honest, like from Telesur. Uh, and then there were also uh, these two French channels. And, uh, you know, for two days, we began in Donetsk, we ended uh, in the Lugansk People's Republic. For two days, we heard from various people, including uh, officials and, uh, and doctors, etc., about the eight years of the bombing, the Ukraine's bombing of the people of Donetsk and, and Lugansk. Um, and we heard uh, specifically from the chief physician at uh, the hospital that was uh, internal, well, that was pretty much destroyed in Volnavaka. And what he said was, he specifically said, uh, Ukrainian forces occupied the hospital, and he specifically said they mined the ICU before leaving. And these two French journalists dishonestly uh, only used like three seconds of his five minutes of talking to us. And they only used a part where he kind of fumbled for words and said, I don't know. So they basically said he didn't know who was responsible for the destruction of that or why there was, uh, you know, firing on that hospital. And so that, and they didn't include anything about the eight years of the war on, on the Donbass. And, you know, notably on our first day uh, in, in March, uh, back in, in, Donetsk, uh, if you'll recall, in mid-March, uh, Ukraine bombed central Donetsk with the Tochka U uh, massive missile, killing, uh, I think it was 21 people and injuring nearly 40, I believe. It might be wrong about that number. Uh, with, and this missile had cluster munitions. So a whole whole lot of uh, um, uh, contraventions of uh, international human law, humanitarian law, right? Uh, war crimes, basically. But... Um, they didn't even mention that. So here's a, a concise example of media having access to the area in question. It's not like they couldn't substantiate anything. They heard the same thing I heard, but they chose to not report it because, again, as I always say, Western corporate media is corporate owned and it is not there to report honestly. It's there to report uh, uh their narratives to fit their agenda, which is always backing the NATO agenda. So, you know, paint Russia, paint the Donbass forces as uh, some illegal, some evil entity, paint Ukraine as heroic in spite of all the Nazis, uh, erase the Nazis, and um, yeah, basically confuse the heck out of uh, the Western public. So I don't really blame 
the Western public for being ill-informed about what's really happening here. Uh, I mean, I wish they would diversify their sources and do more research, but the, the onus really lies on the Western corporate media and, and all the different propaganda uh, channels that are, that are distributing uh, false information about what's really happening here. And, you know, in 2019, I came uh, here for my first time on my own, at my own expense, and uh, I went to Gorlovka and I went to... Um, villages around Gorlovka, so uh, Zaitsevo, a village between Gorlovka and, and Donetsk, Krutaya Balka, uh, Mine 67. And uh, in these areas, they were being bombed on a daily or more likely nightly basis um, by Ukrainian forces. And I was told that Ukraine would bomb during the day, but they it was heavier at night. They'd wait till the observers of the OSCE would leave. And then they just bomb those areas. And uh, the head of Zaitsevo told me, you know, they're just picking off houses one by one, street by street. And uh, they were also uh, notably bombing with weapons that are prohibited under the Minsk Accords, you know, and they've been getting away with this for eight years, even though the DPR and LPR sides are documenting it, um, because the OSCE is also uh, not a neutral body, to say the least, and and because the you know the the nations that uh, co-signed Minsk did nothing to enforce it. So back to what you were saying about Russia. Russia hasn't uh, intervened here for eight years. Russia has pushed for diplomacy. It's only as of February in the military operation in Ukraine that there's intervention of any sort uh, by Russia. Yeah, uh, it was a complete silence uh, this whole eight years. But uh, let's not um, only shout about hypocrisy. Yes, uh, it's hypocrisy. Can we actually do anything to improve this uh, dire situation? Is it just uh, on the shoulders of uh, independent uh, journalists like you? Uh, Well, I mean, I think uh, there are a number of excellent telegram channels, Russian ones, uh, Donbass ones, that are very quick to debunk the false claims that Ukraine is making. You know, everything from the Mariupol maternity hospital that Ukraine and Western media alleged was bombed by Russia. Uh, but, you know, that was debunked as being a staged provocation uh, to 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 the fake uh, Bucha massacre, to all the to the ghost of Kiev video game, <laughs> a hero, yeah. uh, you know, to all these things. I think Russian sources or or Donbass or a combination of the both have been very good at debunking that. And in fact, you know, for people like me, I have a smattering of Russian words, but I by no means means speak the language yet. Uh, so it's you know it's it's important work that these channels are doing because uh, you know whereas I might have good intentions, I don't have the the, the ability to decipher all this uh, very quickly. Where and so I think um, it's not only independent media, but it's it's a lot of independent voices. Even on Twitter, for example, like uh, well, so people like myself, and there are many uh, who are trying to get the truth out, are of course dubbed as Kremlin agents, Russian stooges, etc. Um, and then the corporate media do smear pieces, hit pieces on us, character assassinations. And that's that's also a tactic they did on people who were reporting honestly from Syria. Um, but what I notice is that a lot more people who I don't see having a background in journalism or anything like that are being very vocal on social media. And they're, they're, they're basically telling, you know, the corporate media to shut up and stop lying. The argument about the Kremlin stooges uh, is actually weird because it's not 
really beneficial to be a Kremlin stooge, a stooge <laughs> because everyone hates you. You are in Donetsk being shelled, and uh, for what purpose? <laughs> you can just sit comfortably in Ontario and uh, write about Bucha massacre and uh, earn maybe more money than being a Kremlin agent. So, uh, what mo- motivates you to visit uh, war zones uh, so much? Uh, oh, it's kind of a roundabout. Uh, answer my answer. Um, I basically went from being uh, honestly completely apolitical and ignorant about anything political, wars, history, to in my late 20s uh, discovering the the issue of Palestine and you know the uh, the genocide, the Zionist genocide of Palestinians, and the ongoing genocide, and 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 coming across videos of how Israeli soldiers uh, brutalized Palestinians. And I was uh, being incredibly naive and basically a blank page. I was very much impacted by that. And so in, in 2007, I went to the West Bank of occupied Palestine and over the course of eight months saw, uh, saw and experienced and heard uh, a lot of the 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 crimes against Palestinians that Israel is committing on a daily basis from, you know, from anything as seemingly igno- um, innocent as like checkpoints, but they're actually incredibly dehumanizing to uh, invasions of towns and cities, to curfews on towns and cities, wherein anybody that steps foot on the street are at risk being shot or abducted by the Israeli authorities, to seeing how the illegal colonists brutalize Palestinians, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so that had a great impact on me, particularly since um, the way that Western media and everything, you know, Hollywood and and cartoons um, depict Palestinians and Arabs in general as hateful and backwards and all these uh, horrible uh, stereotypes that that Russians are also subject to. Uh, Instead, I found a very educated, loving, humane people that welcomed me as a daughter and a sister. And it's very hard after you've you've seen like you've gone from uh, I didn't have like a a wealthy Western life, but I had a, a, a I had a safe Western life. I hadn't been subjected to war or any of the things that uh, people in Palestine, Syria, the Donbass, Yemen, and elsewhere uh, are enduring. So it had a huge impact on me uh, to both witness what I what I did see and then also be treated so love with such love from the people that were being brutalized by Israel. Uh, and then I ended up going to Gaza. Uh, I was I was deported by Israel and and. and banned from returning, but um, I was able to enter Gaza by boat from Cyprus in late 2008. And about a month after I got there, uh, Israel began its uh, three weeks of war on Gaza, during which time it prevented journalists from entering so that it could uh, monopolize the and dominate the media narrative. And it was committing horrendous war crimes, uh, everything from white phosphorus to uh, attacking and murdering medics to uh, bombing a media building I was in at the time, uh, to um, point-blank assassinations of children, and many more horrific crimes. And so being there and and riding in ambulances with medics, I was able to document some of the the many, many war crimes. And it's just after that, uh, I think it's difficult to go back to leading a normal life because, you know, by that point I've seen manifold horrors, and I'm very aware, finally, uh, that you know, this isn't just materializing from Israel, it's materializing from the support and, and money and funding and, and, you know, weapons of the West and the complicity of the media. So it basically started from there. 
Um, and kind of, I've been on a learning curve since uh, during my time in Gaza, which uh, I ended up staying in Gaza over the course of five years, a total of three years, um, leaving in March 2013. By that point, the West had started its war on Syria and all the propaganda and lies about a peaceful uprising, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so a year later in March 2014, uh, after leaving Gaza, uh, a year after leaving Gaza, I went to Syria and began reporting from there and just seeing like, uh, whereas before I naively thought, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe The Guardian's a good source of news. Maybe I can get information about Palestine there. But I finally realized, no, wait, all this corporate media is owned uh, by corporate interest, and it's not going to report the truth. And I, I saw that time and again in Syria. So uh, I was, I have to say, fairly tunnel visioned from 2014 on for many years, focusing almost um, exclusively on Syria because I was there and it's hard to multitask uh, in such situations. But I was aware uh, of what was happening. I was aware of the coup d'etat in, in Kiev. I was aware of the Odessa horrific massacre. Um, and I, I, I knew I wanted at some point to try to uh, come here to the Donbass and and try to shine a light uh, on on journalists doing work here, on locals doing work here, and on uh, Kiev's uh, you know criminal eight years of war. Well, by then uh, when I came here, it wasn't eight years, but now it is. So it's it's been an evolution. But uh, basically, I think that anybody that sees you know a fraction of the kind of things I've seen uh, would find it difficult to go back to just leading a normal life and and forget about what's happening uh, far you know far from your comfortable yeah. life in the West. So you have uh, a lot of uh, motherly compassion for the global South, uh, and. Um, but uh, I got to admit that you were continually up in your game because, uh, yes, uh, <laughs> reporting on the Israeli crimes against Palestinians, uh, quite unusual, but not really blacklist worthy. Next, you went to Syria uh, and you were dubbed an Assad apologist. And this is much more hardcore. But it wasn't enough for you because um, in Donbass, you are barely a human person in the eyes of your colleagues. You are now a full-grown orc. So are you welcomed uh, in Donetsk? Do you enjoy your stay there? Uh, I'm sorry, I was, I was laughing. Uh, can you repeat the last part? Yeah. Do you feel welcomed uh, in Donetsk? by I, the locals i do i i absolutely do that that's again like referring or drawing a parallel between my impressions from occupied palestine how in spite of you know the horrible conditions they're enduring uh, i i was met with kindness and friendship and love and i find that here as well um it's i i but you know i i also see people are fatigued obviously after eight years of war and uh and the financial impact as well that this has had and the emotional psychological impact but no i definitely feel welcomed here uh the only risk i feel i do not feel any risk or danger from from local people here the only risk is uh, to me is uh, being bombed by by Kiev or if I were to go back to Canada which you know has a, a, a number I don't know what the number is but a good number of a big number of um, Ukrainian nationalists uh, living under the, yeah. the wing of our deputy prime minister Christian Freeland who's a raving uh, Nazi and whose grandfather was a, a Nazi collaborator I would feel at risk in Canada especially you made reference I think to being put on a, a hit list so yeah I think I feel safe in Russia I feel safe here aside from the Ukraine's bombs but you know, in Canada, I think that there's a good chance that I could be injured or offed and my government wouldn't protect me at all in, in the freedom-loving Canada. 
Yes, I've heard uh, some stories from Americans uh, living in Buffalo uh, that um, Ukrainian diaspora from Canada started infiltrating their states and uh, smuggling drugs and running drug rackets and were in various uh, Ukrainian cultural centers. So Ukrainian diaspora is very strong in every aspect and in the criminal side of things too. So uh, do you know any inside info about Canadian Ukrainians? You know, it's something I need to familiarize myself more with, but uh, I could I could send a couple of links of a, a couple of different journalists that have written more extensively about it. I know that the Ukrainian lobby uh, wields significant power in Canada, which might explain, I mean, Justin Trudeau is just a puppet, right? And Christia Freeland uh, definitely holds more power and her allegiance to to Ukraine is is crystal clear, um, but I've I've also been told that the the lobby, the Ukrainian lobby in Canada, also have uh, quite a bit of power. Um, I know there are there are still Nazi statues in Canada, you know, and in 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 this woke age when statues are being torn down all over the world in, in the name of reparations and justice, the the Nazi statues in Canada stand tall. Um, so there's that. Uh, Christia Freeland herself was holding, now I can't remember which flag it was. Was that um, black and uh, red flag? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was the red and black uh, Ukrainian insurgent army flag, also used by the right sector and various nationalists nowadays. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that, that, that's, uh, I, I do need to, um, to educate myself more just how bad the, uh, the Ukrainian diaspora, not all, of course, I'm sure there's good Ukrainians in Canada, but like the ultra nationalists are, are in Canada. Yeah. I actually, uh, a while ago, I looked a bit into uh, Freeland and, uh, it's, uh, really quite interesting how the, um, Basically, the Ukrainian ultra-nationalist diaspora has infiltrated uh, like both sides of the political spectrum in Canada. Uh, like you had in the like in the 50s and the 60s, uh, you had um, these like uh, bona fide former Nazi collaborators uh, from mm -hmm. Bandarat organizations who were like giving speeches uh, in at the Progressive Conservative Party and um, were working with the conservative uh, political forces in Canada, but at the same time, uh, Freeland's parents, um, I think her mother uh, was it, who was like a feminist activist, but at the same time also like uh, deeply embedded in all these Ukrainian nationalist organizations. So they were uh, like covering their bases and expanding uh, into the whole political spectrum. And uh, I mean, I've joked at times that uh, Canada is basically a Ukrainian crypto colony that is uh, uh, like ruled by a secret council of uh, Ukrainian nationalists. But uh, it's uh, really, as we say in Russia, in every joke, there's a bit of truth. And uh, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that average Canadians actually don't know that, uh, like, right sector or whatever Ukrainian Nazi banderate uh, symbols, they don't know that they are bad and they don't link them to the, the Nazi insignias because they are not being told about it and they think it's their innocent native culture, they're people of swastika <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, so, um, um, you know, yeah, you're aware, I think, was it a BBC report that had like three Ukrainian soldiers with, uh, I don't remember, I think it was Azov, uh, insignias on their arms, on their uniforms. 
and I think it was the BBC that literally like it was a video, but they they photoshopped the insignias out of the video. So mm-hmm. that indicates they know that <laughs> that they shouldn't be you know using these as as sources because they're Nazis, uh, but also that they're using them as sources and and photoshopping them out. <laughs> so they're you know to, of course completely complicit in it. Uh, but no, I think you're right. I think average Canadians don't know, and I'm sure you're aware of like how much of a woke culture there is in the West. So people are are busy talking about their uh, their gender or something, you know, identity politics. And probably, I shudder to think of it, but probably there's, uh, I can think of people I know in Canada that would probably say, oh, no, Christia Freeland's great. She's a very strong Canadian role model kind of thing, you know, and they wouldn't know, of course, that of her support to Nazis. Um, I think that the media has done a really good job in spite of how transparent their propaganda is to to us you know i think they've done a good job at at like blasting it at normal canadians who tune in for half an hour news a day or something you know and and believe it i mean as you've already said there are uh, similarities to what was happening in syria here or what is still happening in syria where you had like hardcore islamist terrorist organizations who were presented in western media as like moderate rebels as the fancy term was back then uh, as if they're some kind of uh, centrist liberal army or something and not uh, like literally just gangs of terrorists yeah yeah they did you know they pushed for years they they pushed oh no this was like there were there were no there were nobody was armed for the first year and a half this is what a lot of the western medias and 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 uh intellectuals that were cited <laughs> were pushing for for many many years on, about Syria that it was just this popular unarmed uh, uprising against an evil dictator until mid 2012 when they were forced to take up arms but that that wasn't the truth you know they were armed from from day one and also as you've noted they were pushing this narrative yeah no like the FSA are different than uh, than uh, Al-Nusra or Ahrar Shamar or any of the other groups right the FSA are good guys they're the free Syrian army but you ask a Syrian that's lived under their rule and they generally don't differentiate between the different groups. I mean, you know, they have different funders and backers, but they all do the same uh, criminal acts. They all commit public executions, uh, imprison civilians, et cetera, et cetera. So, but yeah, you're right. The West would, would for many years, and probably there are still journalists uh, in Western media that continue to refer to the FSA as moderates, but they, they don't, there, there's no moderates. There's no rebels in Syria and there's no moderates amongst the terrorists. I think the reason why Western media is so, are so powerful, despite being very transparent, is because of the myth that um, the non-Western people are uh, basically stupid. They are ruled <laughs> by evil dictator and they're zombies. Also, the word propaganda in the West, it just means uh, something about Russia, not applied uh, locally. So uh, if uh, the rest of the world is uh, stupid zombies who are obeying the <laughs> dictator, then, well, uh, why do you have to even fear or question your own media? Uh, yeah. So it's something. But yeah, you dislike corporate media, but you also talked about BBC. Isn't BBC state-owned or public? Yeah, and that's another thing. Like any anything to do with Russia, whether it's RT to which I contribute op-eds or Sputnik, or you know other Russian media sources, or even if it's just like a Russian account, they'll be like Twitter and Facebook will put a label on them. Uh, maybe YouTube too. I can't remember. 
uh, this this person may be under the influence of the Russian government or something like yeah. that. And I have such a label, and I'm sure you gentlemen do, of course, as well. Um, but uh, yeah, that's the thing I always comment on as well. BBC and Canada's version of BBC, the CBC, should have that same label because they are state-funded. And uh, who was it? Uh, somebody was saying to me, oh, a friend actually who, who lives in Russia, I was, I was just asking him, like, well, RT is, is I don't know to what degree, funded by the Russian government. There's, who, you're not going to de- deny that. But he was, he was saying, you know, actually RT uh, has uh, more, uh, more of a, an, a balanced uh reporting than Western media. RT allows uh, voices of opposition and uh, differing opinions. And in fact, I usually, even though I, even though I contribute to RT, I've, I've been, I would probably be considered more hardcore and more of a, a Russian <laughs> stooge than RT because, you know, some of the lexicon they use sometimes I've, I've been critical of, but that's them uh, attempting to be balanced, right? And attempting to reach a wider audience, whereas you won't find that on, on, on the BBC, on the CBC, etc. Um, and, you know, by the way, uh, I, I've, I've spoken about this recently, but I do want to make a point because you, you did, we, we have talked about Ukraine's kill list in passing, and the CBC recently reached out to me um, and so they wanted to talk about my participation as a journalist on a, a, a a, a, a tribunal on Ukrainian war crimes. And this was back in April in Moscow. And this was uh, a tribunal uh, headed by Maxim Grigoriev, who's done you know excellent research in, in Syria and now in the Donbass and t- taking so many testimonies about the criminal activities of the Ukrainian forces and Azov and IDAR, et cetera. But so because I participated in that, and I, I think I just spoke about media tactics as we are doing right now, uh, the CBC wanted me to comment on a, a something they're doing uh, on my involvement in that tribunal. But the interesting thing was the only way they would have known about that tribunal is if they'd seen uh, the, the Ukraine's uh, kill list entry on me because at the time I didn't publicize it. I think I just didn't have a link for it and I, w- I got busy. So it's not like they saw me on social media saying, hey, I just participated in this tribunal. So they 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 saw the kill list entry on me, which does mention this uh, tribunal. And instead of contacting me to say, hey, you know, uh, we're concerned that a fellow Canadian journalist is put on what is effectively a kill list uh, uh, from which many Ukrainian journalists and activists and opposition members and normal civilians have been killed or disappeared. Instead of saying that, they're like, yeah, we're not going to talk about that. We're just going to say we're going to contact you for a comment about your participation on this tribunal. Having been through this type of uh, attempt at entrapment many times over uh, for my reporting from Syria, I just ignored it and broadcast the fact that they're trying to do this. But, you know, that's just like that's how corporate state state funded corporate owned media role they don't have an interest in honest journalism and if you if you follow toss if you follow sputnik you might not agree with every opinion but you'll find more honesty in their reporting uh than you will in in western uh, funded media i think i think especially uh the english language rt is kind of a special case uh, because it's uh uh, from what I've heard uh, or seen myself, read myself or heard from uh, people I know who wrote for them, that they have a really astounding amount of editorial freedom. Uh, yeah. Like you can be a critic, yeah. like even even like uh, more diverse, they allow more 
a larger diversity of viewpoints than normal like Russian state media and uh, the English-speaking LG really has become a hub for like, like the whole spectrum of opinions uh, which you just don't see in other kinds of media it's uh, really kind of astonishing. Well, to be fair, Russian RT is like that too, because the most uh, prominent new hires are a gay Moscow man and a fat Russian nationalist. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't yeah. aware of that. That's, that's interesting. And it's also interesting that like uh, a lot of people who participate in RT interviews or, or uh, are contributors to the op-ed section, many of them have a background uh, in some capacity in Western media. Um, so it's interesting to see them move from uh, from that to wanting to participate in, in Russian, in R RT instead. Uh, by kill list, do you mean Miratvoritz? Yes, I, I'm sorry, I just always struggle to remember how to pronounce that word, but yes, that's the one I mean. The, peacemaker, the, the yes. peacemaker, yeah. <laughs> Irony. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about what do you like in Donbass people the most? That uh, uh, How are they different from like Palestinians or Syrians? Except for not smiling. Oh. <laughs> I've seen a few smiles here. Um... How are they different? Uh, I gosh, that's a I don't know. Um, I'd have to think about that. Aside from the obvious language and, and so on, um, I, I think probably I'd, I would answer more like how they're similar, and that is again like uh, being put under extreme uh, duress. You know, the eight years of war, uh, financial uh, not collapse, but I mean certainly the economy has suffered, um, et cetera, et cetera. They're still a very resilient people and very down to earth uh, and very brave as well. I mean, there was a clip, you've probably seen it uh, maybe a week or more ago. And it was, um, I don't know if it was a Russian or a Donbass reporter doing an interview with some woman and then a mortar or some sort of bomb landed nearby. And the reporter actually flinched and docked and the woman just stood there. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of like, uh, you know, people here. Stoicism, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Stoicism. Well, uh, also, uh, I think uh, that uh, what um, Westerners uh, very much don't understand is that, um, well, the term Russian propaganda is pointless because Russians are naturally a very independent thinkers, especially right now. I think in Donbass it's similar. Like, no one believes anything from the Russian media, right? And the skepticism is everywhere in Russia. Well, I haven't been to Donetsk, but I would think that Donetsk people are similar. I, I mean, I, I did encounter on my last visit, uh, let's see, so I, I came down uh, again in April, um, and my, my neighbors back in uh, in the Moscow Oblast region, they, they sent a suitcase of humanitarian aid with me, and it was a big suitcase and really heavy. So I was dragging it from a, a, a really cheap uh, apartment I had been renting because it was cheaper than staying in a hotel. I was dragging it from there to a hotel where I was going to meet a delegation and take, you know, the suitcase with me to hopefully distribute the goods, the, the humanitarian aid, the goods. <laughs> um, and uh, a woman saw me struggling with, with everything I was carrying. So she's like, here, let me help you. And she, uh, when I did ask her, like I was, of course, using a translate app, but um, I, I tried to chat with her about the situation. And as I recall, she did seem a bit skeptical about what she was being told. And she basically just said, you know, we just want peace. 
Uh, and you're right. I have I have definitely had conversations with with Russians, and they've said like, you know, is is what we're being told in the media really happening? So I think that you're 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 spot on in, in pointing out that there is a healthy degree of skepticism of of authorities and of media. But at the same time, I've seen like uh, in my experience, of course, it's you know I can't quantify how many people, but like in in my experience in in Moscow, um, I've seen uh, from people I've talked with a lot of support too for this military operation in Ukraine and as mm, support, I mean, course, uh, support for the people of the Donbass and what they're enduring. Yeah, I mean it's uh, exactly the point that uh, I think many Westerners simply don't understand is that there is no contradiction between uh, believing that uh, the military operation to defend the people of Donbass is necessary and uh, still not liking the government or not trusting the news. There is no contradiction between these two positions. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I, I think when the um, the horrific videos of uh, Russian soldiers, prisoners of war being shot in the kneecaps and worse, being mutilated and murdered by Ukrainian forces came out, I think that really uh, had a huge impact, not, not only on military people in Russia, but on society as a whole, because you don't see... Uh, well, first of all, it was horrific, but also you don't see Russians doing that. And I don't think, I don't believe for a moment that's a case of like just that being hidden. I, I think that's just not how Russian military operates. Maybe you have, you know, a random person doing that. I don't know. That can always happen anywhere. But um, it is how y Ukrainian uh, forces and, and Nazis operate. And it's, you know, even like when you consider again, as we were speaking earlier about the shelling of uh, Donetsk, like, they were again targeting civilian areas, targeting a, mater a maternity hospital, uh, you know, and 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 targeting. Uh, when I was here in April, they they hit a market in Western Donetsk, and they shelled. It's starting again. I can hear it in the background. They shelled uh, in daytime, and this was a tactic that uh, terrorists in Syria use, shelling at, at busy times when they know they're going to ensure max maximum casualties. You know, um, so this is. This is like there's no question of, of Ukraine doing this in self-defense or in pursuit of Russian forces or Donbass forces. It's pure terrorism. And uh, that's that's a difference. I mean, if you if you talk with uh, military analysts like uh, Andrei Martyanov or American Scott Ritter or um, a, a number of voices who comment on on Russia's military operation in Ukraine, they will say Russia has worked to minimize uh, civilian casualties, has not done what America, Israel uh, Saudi Arabia do when they're bombing nations. They haven't whole scale flattened entire neighborhoods and taking out key infrastructure. But that is what Ukraine has been doing and not just in the past few months, as you know, in, in the past eight years. Yes, um, I think the problem is in the public image and uh, it's lasting from the Cold War, the same stereotypical, yeah. the cold evil empire of death and gloom and gulag uh, and it's a very, it's a, an image that sells, and no one wants to know uh, Russia for what it is for uh, the kind people and independent mm -hmm. thoughts and philosophy. It's pointless and it's not needed by anyone. Uh, from all the Western media, I like uh, British tabloids the most, like Mirror, yeah. The Sun, because <laughs> uh, uh, a couple of days ago, uh, two British mercenaries uh, from Mariupol were sentenced to death uh, by Putin. That's how they wrote it in uh, Mirror and the Sun. I like the headlines. Uh, how valiantly they defend two mercenary losers that served in the Nazi battalion. 
two uh, brave Britons uh, in horror over being sentenced to death. Uh, will Putin shoot them? Uh, open the newspaper and find out. It's ridiculous how uh, they're so good at uh, <laughs> even defending those two guys. Um, do you like uh, British tabloids? Or what do you think about uh, Aiden or whatever his uh, this guy name? Yeah, Aiden Aslan and Sean Penner. Yeah. Yeah, so Sean, I haven't I haven't uh, looked into that much. Or, uh, but Aiden, I'm aware he uh, also went to Syria, and um, uh, I believe he joined Kurdish forces, who are who are not you know they're they're another uh, propaganda construct in that they've been painted by Western media as these heroic forces fighting both ISIS and the quote unquote regime, when in fact they're working hand in hand with America, Israel, etc., uh, in prolonging the war on Syria and working with ISIS. Uh, and he, so this this dude went and was a mercenary with them, and then he came at some point to uh, to uh, Mariupol to continue that work and. Um, I remember seeing, uh, it was like, um, yeah, like what you're talking about, this tabloid, uh, the horror and shock that, you know, Putin is himself going to assassinate uh, these two mercenaries who are not depicted as mercenaries, but rather innocent young guys who've just gone to fight the valiant fight, etc. Um, but it was, uh, it was uh, a, a screenshot of that type of uh, narrative, and then a screenshot of another um media narrative about, I can't remember what it was, but it was something, I think it was something to do with Russian uh, prisoners of war. And the tone was, of course, completely different. You know, no empathy whatsoever, no concern whatsoever for what would happen with them. But when it comes to these mercenaries, it's like suddenly they're, they're little, well, I mean, it also, if I may, if you remember um, uh, in, uh, I think it was 2013, there was a, I think it was a free Syrian armor, army um, terrorist, uh, Abu Bakr, I think his name was, who basically reached into the dead body of a Syrian soldier and, and took out a lung, uh, a lung or a liver and bit into it. And uh, instead of describing that as a, you know, disgusting act of cannibalism, the BBC actually went on to uh, humanize him and said something like, hey, what, what drove you to such an act, you know? So it's like the media... <laughs> The not only the double standards, but the the, the you know absurdity of the media uh, knows no bounds. But uh, there was something else I was going to say. What was it? What was it? Um, oh, it's totally left me now. Uh, maybe it'll come back. About the courts, uh, about the mercenary. Um, by the way, regarding Sean Penner, the other day I saw an <laughs> old video of him uh, back from he went back from when he went to Ukraine for at first. He was speaking to a British journalist and he was explaining how he had also been in Syria before, I think also with YPG. And uh, how he explained to the British journalist how he uh, believes in the cause of the Ukrainians. He was walking around an Azov base, by the way. Mm-hmm. And um, he also said that it's like a positive aspect that he can go there and get paid for what he likes to do anyway. Uh-huh. <laughs> so totally not a mercenary, of course. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, I, I remember what I was going to add on. It was about what you were saying earlier about uh, uh, about how everything to do with Russia is just depicted as evil, you know, from the Cold War till now. And there are just a couple of points I was going to make. Uh, one is um, in my Telegram channel some weeks ago, uh, I posted, I don't remember what it was, but somebody basically commented with good intentions. They were saying like, they were trying to say like how shockingly bad Western media is, but they, it came out like something like, I can't believe, you know, I have to turn to Russian media to find truth. And I, I just replied back like, but 
why, you know, why, why can't you believe like, why do you automatically assume anything from Russia is, is a lie or propaganda or bad? Um, and then they replied, sorry, they're, a, you know, they're a product of the cold war. They've been heavily indoctrinated. So they're obviously not a bad person. They're trying to, uh, you know, uh, Uh, express empathy but still uh, that indoctrination did express itself and the other point I was just going to make was some years ago I interviewed Maria Zakharova and she was saying like how in three years where she was based in New York and the TV was on every day in those three years she only saw two um, non-negative stories about Russia not even positive necessarily but non-negative and like she's like one was about a ballet about ballet and the other was about a crazy cat lady and the rest of the time Hmm. was all negative stuff you know so I can I can believe it. Uh, yeah, but actually, if uh, there is a will, uh, Western media can easily reprogram uh, the readers about Russians uh, in a moment, like they did with the Ukrainians, because the empathy for Ukrainians are and the support is absolutely manufactured. Uh, a couple of months ago, people they thought that um, well, the, it's Russian. Bidla, Gopniks, retards, drunks, uh, that I hate them, just like the Russians, right? A lot of the same. And uh, suddenly those past enemies, Ukrainians also were enemies of the free world in the Cold War, right? Uh, Now are uh, sweethearts of the Western (laughs) press and uh, some people who believe it. Uh, so can be done, uh, and the image uh, might change and will change. But it's important to know who's calling the shots uh, on the, all those independent, uh, private uh, media outlets that are uh, singing a song in a complete unison. Yeah, and and uh, and just to add on to that, like uh, as you know, until f- uh, February twenty twenty two. There were reports in Western media about <laughs> Nazis in Ukraine, and there was like a report in Haaretz, I think, from 2018 or 19, about uh, human rights groups in Israel uh, demanding Israel stop arming Nazis in Ukraine. You know, so you could see all this reporting. There was a Newsweek 2014, I think it was, article talking about IDAR and how their crimes were similar to ISIS. So there was a lot of recognition that these Nazi battalions and groups exist and that they were committing horrific crimes. But then come come February 2022, as you say, media just completely changed the narrative and whitewashed them. And now, you know, now we saw, what was it, Azov removing uh, a Nazi symbol from their uh, logo. So now, so now they're suddenly not holding any sort of extremist or Nazi ideologies because they removed one symbol. Like it's, it's, it's absurd. Yeah, but it's not genuine. No one actually uh, thinks that or even cares that much about anything on that. Uh, because as we yes. we had an interview with uh, American writer Delicious Takas and uh, we talked about some Georgian person and he called him a Russian. I, I corrected him. Well, he's a Georgian. And he replied, I don't give a shit because you're both uh, hairy guys in snow beating your wives. Uh, there's literally no difference between the two. And I agree. Well, it's a correct, absolutely correct uh, uh, opinion to have when you're an American. You don't really care. And uh, that's the truth of the matter. But separating the uh, freedom-loving Ukrainians and uh, uh, gulag-loving Russians is uh, just mind games. Well, gosh, that that uh, stereotype is 
horrific. Uh, I mean, if that guy, I, I, he sounds like a redneck to me, but were to be... <laughs> I like stereotypes. I find it extremely funny and uh, I liked it a lot, actually. Um, <laughs> Russians are not... Yeah, so uh, it's not the point that um, we are so fragile about the image. Uh, it's that... Um, I know, it's uh, so fake, it can cr crumble in a second, and that's the problem. But all right, let, enough about the media. Yeah, uh, I asked our audience in Discord, maybe they would uh, want to ask you something. And the mm -hmm. first question is this, uh, your favorite restaurant in Damascus? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, you know, I would answer my favorite thing in Damascus is to get saj, which is a, a type of flatbread that is then filled with cheese or za'atar or uh, hamara. Um, so it's a really cheap street food and it's you often drink it with uh, ayran and I love that. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and honestly, I, I don't eat out at restaurants that often. What I usually do is go to like a local hole in the wall kind of place that serves a plate of fool or um, hummus or chickpeas and uh, yeah. In Donetsk? No, in Damascus. I, I oh, think yeah. <laughs> Damascus, right? Yeah, right, 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 right. Have you tried sushi in Donetsk? <laughs> no, should I? Yes, 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 you absolutely should. Um, it's the capital of sushi. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> uh, we talked about it actually on one of the, on our last episodes. It's because there are problems with um, deliveries of fresh meat in, in Donetsk. And uh, that's why over the last eight years, uh, I, I'm not sure why uh, delivering fish is easier. But for some reason, uh, it's easier to get uh, fish in Donetsk than meat. And uh, so there is a lively sushi culture in Donetsk. And uh, sushi rolls are a very prominent food oh. among locals. <laughs> That's very interesting. Mm, so you don't like soups, do you? Oh, I love soups. And, oh. uh, you know, I, I know it's cliche, but I happen to love borscht. And the best borscht I had was in Gorlovka. It was at a friend's uh, house and his mother made it. Mm -hmm. uh, was there any sala and vodka? Was there what? Uh, was there any sala and vodka to accompany uh. the borscht? No, no, not at that house. Uh, I've had some homemade vodka, but that was in, in uh, uh, Moscow. Uh, mm -hmm. It was quite tasty. Um, I don't think I've had vodka here, but I should probably change that. <laughs> well, you know what? Today's my birthday, so it's probably a good day to do that. Oh, happy birthday. Oh, happy birthday. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Shameless plug for myself. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, not many more interesting questions. Uh, uh, I don't think that you uh, want to answer why can't Israel Mossad the Assad? Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, the, the entire West and its allies, including Israel, can't. Uh, he's beloved by the Syrian people, you know, and this is one of the things I got vilified for saying. Uh, because you go there and it's, it's really hard to find a Syrian that will actually say they don't like Assad. Yeah, they exist, but most people would be like, yeah, you know what? I, I met him by accident one day. He was in this market or, you know, he dropped into this whatever. Or like one friend's like, yeah, I was walking down the street in Damascus drinking lemon juice and he drove by uh, drinking lemon juice and rolled down his window to show me his cup <laughs> like, to show they were drinking the same thing. It's pretty crazy because he's the president of Syria, but he's, uh, he's a very down-to-earth person and he is beloved by the people. So the West tried to Mossad the Assad, but they failed because they didn't take into account how much support he has. 
Yeah, I think maybe the stereotype of uh, people who actually are captivated uh, about the leader is more fitting about uh, Syria or Syria. Uh, and uh, Russians are not like that in that um, I haven't seen really any fans, Putin fans, uh, for all, all my life. Uh, I've seen people who were... Uh, cynically agreeing with Putin on something, but uh, not <laughs> this romantic love for Bashar, like in Syria. Uh-huh, that's interesting. I I'm still new enough to Russia that I can't, like, mm -hmm. really... I'm I'm still observing, so I, I don't really know, but that's that's interesting to hear. But yeah, it definitely exists in Syria. I mean, for example, uh, the elections were, blah, 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 what, May 2021, and I went back to Syria... And it was pretty poignant to be there because I know how Western media portrayed the elections. Uh, but to me, it was um, the Syrian people not only voting for Bashar, but also rising up and saying, like, look, you tried to defeat us, you being the West and its allies. And here we are still standing. And it was pretty notable, too, that, that President Assad went to Duma, which is, as you know, the site of one of many media fabrications, the fake chemical attack in 2018. And so uh, he went there to uh, he went there during the elections. And I think that's where he cast his vote. Right. Uh, so it was pretty cool to see because, you know, this is an area that's supposed to hate him because he allegedly caused a gas attack. And yet when I went there, uh, would have been some hours afterwards with the media group. Uh, we saw people dancing in the street <laughs> and, and cheering. So obviously mm -hmm. uh, they, they could have all been staged. They could have all been performers, but I, I'm inclined to think that it was genuine. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. But I'm sorry. What I was going to say was that uh, being, being in Syria, um, when uh, the election results were announced, uh, the, um, uh, Umayyad Square, central Damascus Square, just erupted. Like it was just filled, packed with people, and it just erupted. It was just uh, so much positive, enthusiastic energy. It was pretty amazing to be there. Uh, so, which one of the conflicts that you visited and lived in the uh, those areas uh, do you think is uh, right now is closer to being resolved? Mm. Well, definitely not Palestine. Uh, yes. Although, you know, I'll support to the resistance, but Israel uh, has the backing of so many nations and can literally commit untold war crimes and never be held accountable and can can do their own investigations of their own war crimes and say, no, we didn't commit them. So uh, and the UN is complicit in whitewashing their crimes, et cetera. So um, Syria, uh, the Americans still occupy swaths of eastern Syria. Turkey does in the north. Um, they're still looting Syrian oil and causing uh, untold poverty and misery amongst the Syrian people by their sanctions. And they don't seem to be letting up on that anytime soon. Um, on the other hand, I, I, don't, I can't predict, you know, how, how the conflict here is going to be resolved. I mean, I, I suppose the, the positive thing we can observe is that, like, as far as I understand, most of Lugansk People's Republic has been uh, returned uh, or, yes. re, yeah, restabilized, let's say. Um, but I, I don't know, you know, how long it will take for the, the you know the ter the terrorists well they are terrorists actually the Ukrainian forces that are bombing Donetsk and Gorlevka and other areas I don't know how long it will take for them to be either uh, you know uh, pushed back or or uh, eradicated but 
it's hard to say when this conflict will be resolved, but um, I think I think people who have been observing it for eight years would would agree that it, it, at least now it's happening rather than pushing more diplomacy, which was, you know, not a I don't think a bad move on Russia's part. It was adhering to international norms and laws, but on the other hand, the West is never going to be a fair player. So it's 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 I think uh, appropriate that. Um, there is now military action to denazify Ukraine and to restore stability here. Yeah, for sure. It has been coming for a very long time. And uh, I mean, I personally, uh, I remember the first images and videos of uh, bombs falling on Donetsk and Lugansk eight years ago. Mm -hmm. And um, although I think the tipping point when I started... um, when I was completely sure that this war would come eventually. I think that was actually the massacre in Odessa. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I was uh, the only person to think so. Uh, the bulk of volunteers from Russia who joined the uh, Donbass militias, they decided to go there after the Odessa massacre as well. I guess it will take, uh, it will still be a while. But um, for how long are you uh, planning to stay in Donetsk? Um, I, I haven't, I don't really have a, a departure date in mind. It, it, it kind of depends how, uh, how things uh, continue. Uh, I do want to go back to Gorlovka at some point, mm-hmm. and we'll see if I get back to Lugansk or not. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, I'll just see how things continue. I, I do have some, I have two dogs back in Moscow that I have someone <laughs> caring for, but you know, <laughs> they, I, as long as they are cared for, then I could I could continue staying here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I did want to say, um, you know, one of you touched on like um, how this Western outrage and concern for Ukraine was completely ma- manipulated. Uh, you know, social media changing people's profile pictures to Ukrainian flags, etc. Um, but in there, you know, when they condemn Russia for waging a military operation against Nazis and 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 taking out Ukrainian military uh, installations and capabilities, most of these people uh, really, like you're talking about this, the Odessa massacre and, and all the other horrific things that Ukraine has been doing to its own people, you know, not including the Donbass, but like the disappearing of journalists and activists and opposition members and torturing people and imprisoning people. I think most people, not I think, I know most people in the West aren't aware of that. And I just would ask them just like, you know, when people are saying, I stand with Aleppo, I stand with Idlib, you know, I'm like, you're standing literally with Al-Qaeda. Would you honestly send your daughters and your sisters to live under their rule? Like, just actually try to educate yourself and understand what it means to stand with these people and what it means to stand with Ukraine. Um, But unfortunately, most people won't. So that's the frustrating, uh, it's one of many frustrating things, I, I would say, um, because, uh, look, nothing is perfect. Russia's not perfect. The military's not perfect. But this depiction of the military just wantingly killing civilians and destroying inf- infrastructure is not uh, a- appropriate at all. And uh, at the same time, the reverse uh, depiction of Ukraine is this democratic state where uh, people live freely and, and let's celebrate gay pride in, in Ukraine, you know, amongst Nazis who I'm sure would love to uh, kill homosexuals. Um, it's just people are so ignorant. It's it's frustrating. Uh, but I, I, I try to limit how much of that kind of idiocy I, I see or expose myself to. <laughs> it's too fatiguing. 
Actually, you uh, let out uh, an important Freudian slip there. Uh, oh, because, did I? Yes, uh, you said that uh, before that you uh, are not controlled by Moscow, but apparently you have two dogs that are commanding where you <laughs> must go when you operate. So, uh, yeah, you are a stooge, but two dogs are your handlers. Yeah, <laughs> They definitely are, and they're, they're little hooligans. They're appropriate Russian hooligans, too. Well, considering that you have a birthday, we will not waste your time any longer. Thank you, Eva, for coming on our show and go make sure to eat some sushi today. <laughs> Thank you, Nikolai. Thank you, Kirill. It's been really fun talking with you. Yes, yeah, thank same. you very much for coming on. Uh, thank you for your work and stay safe while in Donbass. Thank you both. <laughs> see, see you on uh, Telegram and Twitter. <laughs>